Welcome to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This is a podcast where we explore how the best B2B sales leaders make the complex simple, drive relationships and revenue, and generally elevate the sales profession. In this podcast, we're bringing together sales experts, thought leaders, top account executives, buyers, industry insiders, all to share their experiences and best practices for navigating the complex sales cycle. So whether you're a seasoned sales professional, a sales leader, or just starting out, you're going to find practical insights and actionable advice that you can apply to your own sales journey. Plus, we have a bit of fun. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing today with the next part of our interview with SaaS expert, Jaco Vanderkoy. We ended the last episode discussing the golden age of SaaS and where we're headed in the future. Buckle up and get ready to learn. What are some of the key stats that you're seeing? Because uh, look at this, you can look at like the rule of 40, you can look at net revenue retention, all those things in terms of the stats that people were really highly focused on getting them that multiple, getting them that investment and that type of thing. What type of stats are you recommending for sales teams and SaaS sales teams that they look out for in terms of this ongoing build, right? It, we're kind of a foundational build. Uh, sounds like yeah. we're getting to a, we're getting to a sustainable model, not a model that's predicated on, you know, 200% growth a year. So we're coming out of, a, a, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word scalable, sustainable, and durable. Scalable growth simply is if I pour more money in it, will it grow? Not efficient. Is it not if is it efficient or effective? Will it grow and will it grow at high velocity? So scalable growth is growth as a function of velocity. And that has been primarily in the golden age of, 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 of SaaS between 2012 and 2022. That was the way we defined growth, scalable growth. Late 2019, or in the the years of 2019, we we realized that this was not sustainable. And so myself, I presented, I remember vividly, I presented that SaaS stock in Dublin in late 2019, sustainable growth. Sustainable growth is a function of scalable growth, which is growth as a function of velocity, plus cost. Is it affordable? In other words, if I grow, if I spend 2x, do I get 2x to growth or do I only get 1.01x to growth? Of course, if I only get 1% of growth, but I spend twice as much on it, it's not sustainable. And I believe that if something is not sustainable, by definition, it is not scalable. And now we have durable growth. And durable growth has to do with, are you selling to the right customers? Are you establishing NRR over the long-term net uh, revenue retention? In other words, does your customer keep growing along with you? And if your customer keeps growing along with you, you have durable growth. But if you win lots of, of customers, but they don't grow with you from the expansion of them, then it's not durable because you need to keep primarily driving growth from acquisition. Durable growth means that you have established a balance between acquisition uh, growth from acquisition as well as growth from expansion. So these three terms, we see that we're now growing to. And if we see where we're at today, we essentially are more on the trend of skipping the sustainable growth and going straight to durable growth. Why? Sustainable growth was supposed to come in 2019. You know, the pandemic overruled it. And so now it's too late. You know, like it's it's not good enough to just have the right cost factor, whether we measure that in NRR or whatever. The pandemic artificially, I mean, really artificially, Kept us at the sustainable growth phase. Scalable growth. It kept us the scalable, scalable growth. Sorry, scalable growth phase. 
That's right. And so now what we see is we go to durable growth. And if we need to see, we need to grow from customers that expand. What we commonly see, and, and I, this, it is important for the listeners to realize this, what we need beyond, the, what I'm about to say is beyond 10 million in recurring revenue. Things before 10 million in recurring revenue are not going to change that much. Why? It's entrepreneurial. You need to make your product work. You need to achieve product market fit and so on. But once you are starting to hit 5 million, 6 million, 7 million dollars, things start to break down. And where it starts to break down is as follows. When you grow a company through $5 million and beyond, you generally get an A round. And an A round generally is used to hire more people. And so seed round typically is 10 people. An A round generally gets you into play when we're talking about like, you know, like after an A round, you go to about 50 people. After you get a B round, you generally grow to about 100 and 150 people. That means that we are growing rapidly, our organization, in an A round, we grow from 10 to 50 people. And then we move from 50 to 100, 150 people. Lots of people are being added right at around 5 million to about 20 million. And we're adding all these people without a, pro- a known and proven process. So what happens if I'm launching and I'm hiring all these people? And at the same time, I have no proven process. I get chaos. Mm-hmm. What does this chaos ensue? And I, I, I need to, you know, like, so this chaos start to ensue, right? So keep that in mind. Second thing, how did I achieve $5 million in growth? I achieved that because of a tremendous amount of, of superstars that I have. Superstars are what makes a company work to 5 million, make him to 8 to 10 million. Superstar behavior is fantastic. These are the real entrepreneurs. These are the founders, the CEOs, that first generation of sales uh, person, right? Uh, the first engineers. These are the superstars. And so in companies under five, between five and 10 million or right around, I have a huge amount of, of superstars you know, compared to the overall population, right? But the problem with superstars is they resent processes because it slows yes. them down. And so all the way up to five to $10 million, I am creating this high, rapid, extreme access, everybody happy based on superstars. And what do we do? We celebrate superstars. We give them more compensation, more stock. We put, you know, like we tell them and we talk about them at the quarterly, monthly meetings, the top performers. And so we completely nurture this behavior of superstar because that's what got us to work, to make all this work. What got us here unfortunately, will not get us where we're going. What got us to that point of superstars, that anti-process, that extreme entrepreneurial behavior, which is needed to get to five to $10 million, suddenly when I get an A round and when I get $10 million on average or a B round, in which sometimes the averages in 2021 were, tw- were $30 million, they probably have come down a little bit. What do I do with all that money? Well, my venture capitalist, the board member will tell me, Hire more people, go faster, deploy more marketing, invest more in marketing, invest in more salespeople. So they are telling me, while I am still floating on the superstar culture, and while I get, I'm get, i flushed with cash at this point, they tell me hire more people. So I have a lack of a process, driven by superstars who resent process, infused by an unlimited amount of funding, of which my board members tell me, essentially, hire more people. This creates a volatile circumstance. This creates that chaos that sits right between A and B, 
which often means that people start to not collaborate with each other. The VP of sales and the VP of marketing chasm starts to occur. The VP of sales with the VP of customer, at that point in time, the head of customer success starts to occur, right? Where, where a VP of sales says to the customer, says, just don't lose my deals. I won these deals. Why do you keep losing them, right? Churn is an indication of, is a metric that indicates that. This entire world of chaos occurs. And in that world of chaos, only a few. It is one out of every 50 companies that makes it. This is a little bit more, I think, 1.6. I, pro I probably should point that two out of 50 companies will make it to a successful IPO. Sorry, to make it to an IPO. And out of every 10 companies that make it to IPO, only one out of 10 public SaaS companies actually becomes economically a success that they end up in a profitable scenario. That means what, 0 0.2 out of 50, 2 out of 500, 1 out of 250 companies are making it as, make it into successful. Wow. This is all because of the lack of process, the lack of operating model, and as a result, all these things, yeah, the causes. And when you look at these successful SaaS companies, it's no mistake what you look at them. They all say the same thing, customer-driven, process-centric, high quality of skill training in the organization, right? Like it's the same yep. thing. It's what agile development does. It's what TQM does. It's what uh, all these process improvement companies are constantly preaching to us, but we're not adhering to it because we think we think that we're painting Picassos where you've built a company that's simply painting apartment complex, uh, 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 painting apartment complexes, right? That's what we you're doing. There should be a mandatory pause between A and B. Like I, uh, I, I come out. I have a, a sales rep that recently came with us, and he was giving me a story, like from the other side, from the salesperson's perspective, right? Of going to a, a, a funding company exactly at the stage that you require. And he said it's, it, it is chaos. It's that that impact. Okay, just more feet on the street, more feet on the street, more feet on the street. But they, in the same type. They, they implemented three different CRMs over the course of a year and a half because they didn't know what worked. They threw a bunch of tools at it. So it leaves a salesperson grasping at straws and saying, okay, I'm just going to go out and do my own thing. Right? So, I, that's common. Okay, but, but, but how can it be? And, I, and before you answer, I want, I, you know, like I'm going to ask the, the audience to contemplate the following. How can it be that only two out of 50 companies can be successful, of which all 50 companies receive in, in this case, a significant A round, right? From a meaningful investor, right? An investor that is often stacked with talent with experience. These are you know, people that know how to calculate. That's, that's absolutely not an issue, right? The companies that they fund are stacked with talent, some of the best and smartest people in the world, right? Getting access to an unlimited amount of resources in most cases. How can it be that only two out of 50 become successful? Ask yourself this. How can that be? That is always coming down to the same thing. What got you here won't get you there. Everybody that up to that point has been successful has been successful by resisting process. Mm -hmm. When you found a company, you left the company that was very process-driven in general. You came out of a market and you go, like, this takes way too long, right? When you're a VC, you go like, we need to uproot, we need to dis disrupt these enterprise-grade companies, which are all very process-driven, right? You file your expense report on a Friday, right? Like, with the receipt, and if not, you're flagged. You spend, like, 60 emails on trying to get them to explain that, you know, like, 
Anyway, you know the drill. And so, like, so everybody has historically resisted process across this entire journey. And they've all constantly been proven right. By the time a founder gets his, his or hers, you know, like let's say $10 million A round, they have the fight all the odds. They have overcome the advice of many of their best friends, their family members, who all said they were not going to end up in anything. And so up to that point, every time somebody told them what to do and how to do it, they defy that in generally. And as a result, they become successful. And here at $10 million, we tell them, you got to go do what you hate doing and the reason why you started the company to achieve what you want to become, which is one of those companies. And this thing is just a mental block for most of these organizations. There's one more challenge, and I'll, I'll, I'll open it. You know, like normally under normal circumstances, companies. If you go back 20 years, a company would grow to under normal circumstances, it would grow to about 100 million dollars, and it would take 20, 30, 40 years. I was raised in Philips. Philips is a hundred plus year company. I think they're at this point 125 years. Mm-hmm. These long enterprises achieved success over decades. And so most companies, even if you today look at you know, like companies like Google, they're around for like, like decades, right? They're not like, oh, they were funded a few years ago. And so it takes company normally 40 years to, let's say, achieve $100, $200 million in revenue. In 40 years, they often work off, you know, like employees that stay with the company three to four years. When I came at Philips, they they told you, you're going to be doing this job for five years. The first year, we invest in you. The second year, we expect you, you know, to start contributing. Your third year, you're really productive. We actually make money on you. Your fourth year, you'll probably start to look for your next year. And in your five year, you'll transition to your next job. And so very common, they kept the same rhythm that you had from schools every four years, every four years, every four years. You go into this five-year cycle. What we do at startups, we brought down that five-year cycle on average to 10 years. Some go over 12, 13 years. You know, high flyers, well, I'd argue whether the high flyers, but some companies go faster, six, seven, eight years, but it's 10 years. Now, in those 10 years, as company progressed through that, let me ask you, who is the most important person in a company at about $1 million revenue to get the company to $1 million revenue? Who's the most important person? CEO. CEO or founder, right? Often yep. the same, right? Okay. At five to $10 million, who is the most important person that takes me to five to $10 million? Uh, head of sales and marketing. Head of sales, generally, mm-hmm. right? Now, if I get to $10 million, $10 to $20 million, who becomes the most important person at that particular point in time? COO operations. COO operations. I would shift it out a little bit. I would put the VP of marketing in there first. First, okay. the deals come in, then the leads yep. come in, right? And so I go from founder, be very responsible, top salesperson, marketing, CMO comes in. Then I probably somewhere along the line, COO, we skip the entire customer success person. They never become really important, unfortunately. This pains me to say, but that's the case. And then we somewhere along the line, we switch potentially to the CFO as we go public, right? You know, like mm-hmm. and, and as we ramp up. All this in a span of 10 years. If you if you map that out, that means that the company approximately is dependent on a new lead dog every 18 months, right? Every 18 months we shift. Wow. Do you, think that, do you think that the person who is the previous lead dog 
likes the fact that we're switching to a new lead dog? No. No. Do you think that the VP of sales who took like so much effort to accumulate not only all these customers, often personal wealth in the process because of the commission checks, do you think they go like, okay, it's okay. I now need to give up and make the CMO a success. They're not thinking about that. Do you think that the CMO goes like, okay, 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 okay. CMO and the VP of sales go, let's make room on the table for the head of customer success and, and share our wealth with it. Of course not. And so as the company grows through these stages, these executives and these the functions that they represent, the department, start to bite each other. They start to steal from each other, which is only contributing to the two. Why? Because 18 months is not a long enough cycle for an executive to stay there. They are used to staying there for two to three to four years, right? And so mm -hmm. after 18 months, with the tenure nowadays being 18 to 24 months, they are so afraid of the job being that they're being pushed out of the job that they got. And often the contracts do not honor that, right? You know, like three months pay at the most, maybe a couple of weeks. So this entire system is still built along outside and outdated systems. And here we have executives competing, attributing to this enormous chaos that sits right between a company when they are between 10, 20, 30 million dollars. Executives are biting each other. I got no process. I got a high growth people. I got unlimited funding, dependent on tool structure, right? And I got no skill level. That's your problem. That's why you've blown. You yeah, you have blown my mind. I, I've been working with SAS, well, SAS and startup companies since 2007 is when I, I started a business that we would do sales of the service for these organizations. But what you just described there in four minutes sums up how like looking at these companies and how you would see the interplay and the interconnectedness of it, you're dead on. Like that's, I, I think you can absolutely tell that you're, you've been in this world for a long time, but how, how do you deal with that? Like what... How do you fix it? How do you fix it? Yeah, the, the fix is known. There's no difference than, than what I'm about to tell you is as, as simple as ABC, as, as yeah, I want to say a spy, but I'm telling you, making good pie is not simple. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, but it's simple. Okay, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lead with the conclusion. You need to have a, you need to have a methodology that is customer centric, aka the, the methodology needs to be on, on delivering the customer's outcome, number one. Number two, you need to make sure that you have a standardized, a common language that people speak with each other so that everybody in the organization speaks the same language. And number three, you need to make sure that you act and behave and are a data-driven company. And that by itself is a loaded term, but you need to act and behave on data, not on opinions and best, you know, like on what we see on stages and not being influenced by by these trade shows or workshops where, you know, like um, some joker who has been successful in some form or shape, rightfully so, that's not the point, but it's telling everybody else to go that way. And we all like, no, that's not how it works. Okay, so number one, customer centric. You need to learn early on in a company, in a recurring revenue company, that recurring revenue, that, sorry, that growth is a result of recurring revenue. The more recurring revenue I have, the faster I grow because the less I need to depend on winning new acquisition deals. And so, but recurring revenue itself is not the goal that we seek. Recurring revenue is a result of something. And it's very simple what is the result of recurring impact. If Netflix doesn't give me new TV shows and I keep watching the same TV shows, then sooner or later, I'm going to unplug from Netflix and I'm going to move to a different network. You know, like uh, my kids are out of the house and I am coming up to the point that I'm unplugging Disney. I don't need it any longer. 
because the TV show that it brings to me is no longer valuable. And, you know, like, hey, you know, like, I'm not going to watch the Star Wars episodes for another. I've been overwhelmed with the Marvel. Like, so no recurring impact, no recurring revenue. If I know that recurring revenue is the result of recurring impact, then my goal of the entire organization should be to achieve recurring impact. What is recurring impact? Recurring impact is an outcome. Let me explain to you what the difference is. If I buy a product, like I buy a car, if I want to have a car that takes me to the office, I can buy a car. I still need to pay road taxes. I need to drive myself, park myself, and pay an enormous amount of parking, gas, everything, right? The whole thing. I need to do it. That is when you buy value. Value is the promise that it can create impact. If I get an Uber, I get impact. I pay to the person to drop me as close to the destination as possible within the shortest a lot of the time. I'm not paying for the radio. I'm not paying for the temperature. I'm not paying for all the other things. They were secondary. I'm paying for one thing. Drop me off at the set time at the set place. That's impact. Impact is what your customer gets out of the product that they buy from you for which you are promising them value. Hence the reason value proposal, value selling. You're selling a promise that they can. And the entire enterprise world, which is the entire SaaS software world, which is based on the historic enterprise sales worse, a perpetual software world says, I sell you the product. The value is here. You need to get you, the customer, responsible for the impact. And so hence, we only look at onboarding churn as the major reason of churn. We are never reporting to the customer back which impact they get. And as the saying goes, the first principle of this, step number one, how do I create a common methodology? Create a common methodology by being impact-centric. Impact-centric is based on the first principle of recurring revenue. And that is recurring revenue is a result of recurring impact. Therefore, the entire organization must put itself into the service of helping a customer achieve that impact. That's it. You need to find, that means that you need the customer to get, if I go back from that point, that means I get to the customer, I need to report the customer first, uh, recurring impact, right? Report like Slack does. Every month they send me a report what the impact is that I get out of Slack. That means they need to get me to first impact. That means that the sales organization need to sell against impact. That means that my prospectors need to prospect on impact. And that means that my lead generation, my marketing, my brand and awareness all should be focused around that impact that the customer at the back end gets. The entire organization needs to be unified around customer impact, number one. Number two, we need to speak a common language. So if sales hands off a customer, they need to say, this is the customer situation. This is the pain that they're having. Therefore, this is the impact that they want by set date. As a result, these all these people were involved in decision. We call this spiced situation, pain. What's the impact? Critical event as the form of time. Indeed, the decision. What we want is a salesperson to hand off to the customer success rep what it is that this deal does. And as if, if the, the, the customer success onboarding rep now picks up the phone and says to the customer, just spoke to uh, the person who sold this to you, and they told me this was your situation, this was your pain, this was your blah, blah, blah. Then the customer goes like, exactly. Or they may say, eh, things have changed here. The date has shifted. I now need a different impact. But you got a framework. That framework 
every organization, whether you built a Ford car, whether you walk into a hospital, where you know, like when you walk into a hospital, <laughs> it's all about heart rate, blood pressure, uh, your temperature, right? This is like anywhere you go into an emergency room, there will be the same metrics that they take on, and that becomes the language how they start communicating uh, uh, between between doctors and between emergency room, uh, right? It's the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Number one was methodology. Number two was a common language. Do we all speak the same language? And number three, it needs to be data-centric. Are we measuring things? The reason why marketing and sales often do not get long is because the data is wrong, because we define MQL, marketing qualified lead, and you know, like an, an opportunity in two domains. One works in the opportunity and the qualified opportunity domains, and the other works in a marketing qualified lead, sales qualified lead, right? And then somewhere in here, these two, these two do not communicate the same language. When we translate that back to data, to a data model, we can see that it normalizes communication, right? And often we use that as a step. We say, okay, let's see what we got. This data model needs to be and needs to be understood that today's marketing and sales funnel, which acts and behaves as a data model, is an incomplete view of the customer journey. It omits the entirety of the part where recurring impact is delivered, achieved, and paid against. It only goes in many cases up to, at best, onboarding. And so what we have deployed and we have made available via the scienceofrevenue.com, a new model called the bow tie. And that bow tie takes as much focus and detail in the data model on what happens after the deal close, or as we call it, the mutual commit. Since the market and sales funnel provides an incomplete view uh, because the recurring revenue taking place outside of the purview of the marketing and sales funnel, it means that in the executive boardroom, it gets less attention. Let me give you a practical example. We help numerous times in this case. Two years ago, I helped uh, you know an, an, a large customer. They went public on a, what is it? I think they were slated to go public seven billion. They went they, they on their first day they got seventy billion dollar valuation, but something was amiss. We knew it, and today that is reflected in in in, in some of their stock price. What was amiss is that they did not really have that complete view. They were completely focused on growth through acquisition, which is a very common mistake. And so they stuck with acquisition. Now, they grew a little bit in expansion, but as many of you may know, may, may have heard before, they used the sellers to expand the deal. So the seller would close the initial deal and then would be held responsible for the renewal and the expansion in subsequent years, okay. which seems logical because you maintain the relationship. The problem is that the cost of acquisition is significantly higher than the cost of tradition of expansion. And when I start moving my salespeople to do the expansion, that means that my cost of expansion, which normally is about one-sixth to one-fourth of the price, suddenly becomes equally that of acquisition. That means that my cost of revenue growth go, you know, like, goes super high. And as a result, this particular company, I noticed it the other day, the last quarterly report operates 67% of their annual uh, growth is being paid for by marketing sales. So they invest 67% of all their annual revenue goes to marketing and sales each year. That's enormous. That's, yeah. I'll give you an example of how I found that. Look at the deck, the quarterly deck. Let's call it the 50-slide deck. Mm-hmm. And in that 50-slide deck, 
What do you think we're going to talk about? What is the number one thing in an organization like that, that, that growth from acquisition? What are slide one to 10 talk about? What do you think, Paul? Pipeline. Pipeline. And what sits at the top of the pipeline? Marketing. Marketing, leads. Mm-hmm. So 10 slides about where the leads came from, okay? Then add another 20 slides on how, which segment, SMB, mid-market, enterprise, conversion rate, win rates, go deeper, which salesperson closes which, go on, on quota performance, on target performance, quota plan. Okay, I'm 30 slides deep into this deck, right? 30 slides. Growth, where growth comes from, what we need to do, you know, like another 10 slides, okay? Five slides. I may give them too much effort down here. Five to six slides at most on customer success and impact. So what this customer, what this particular customer says, no, of course we talk about customer success and we have a person assigned to customer success. And I go like, okay, we're in the deck. Well, at the back of the deck. And how long is your meeting? Well, 90 minutes. And how often, you know, like, you know, like you get at the end of that deck and don't get me wrong, like out of the team of 20 executives that are responsible for revenue at the company that size, 17 are acquisition and three are expansion based, right? So the 17 have a lot more to talk about. And so by the time we get to the customer success part, it is an afterthought. Mm-hmm. It is an afterthought, right? This is where recurring impact takes place. This is where the entire growth, this is where you learn which are your right customers. This is where you learn which customers want to expand. And so you see, this can, you can put back to the front end of the marketing and you can connect these two and you go like, this is amazing. And what do they do? It sits at the back of the deck. That is the reason why only one out of 10 public SaaS companies are able to become successful because they don't understand they need to grow to an impact-centric organization. And again, I'll, 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 refrain, I'll say it again what these three things are. Just to, to <laughs> Number one thing, you got to have a customer-centric methodology means impact-based. Number two, you got to have a common language that everybody in the organization speaks. In this case, <coughs> I use Spiced. And number three, you got to use a data model in order to make sure that we measure and, and stop at the right point and that we let data do the talking so we're not in each other's hair. Simply, if the leads are bad quality, we can all the way trace it back to where they came from. And for that, we use a more comprehensive model, not the marketing and sales funnel. We use the bow tie. And the bow tie is just a continuation. We've all made this available to public domain under the scienceofrevenue.com. We believe that this is important for like a standard for all us, us to have. Uh, it's available under Creative Commons license, and that is only to protect it from any joker out there trying to monetize it. I feel like it's a national park that we have established. And like a national park, we want it to be free and accessible for, for the rest of our lifetimes. So nobody can start putting up, you know, like gates and start charging fees and put, you know, like cookies on it and pixels, stuff like that. We really wanted to contribute that to the market. So that's where we're at. We call all this revenue architecture to pitch briefly Winning by Design. Um, In this Winning by Design is this company that delivers this. We have a course that teaches all of this called Revenue Architecture. Uh, Revenue Architecture is a renowned class. It's our number one class class. we do about we train about 100 revenue architects a month these days. Many well-known institutions like Pavilion are using this as the cornerstone of their growth. So if you're a member of Pavilion, you get you get complimentary access to this. 
And yeah, like we are, I'm coming out of a new book. The early version of this book is called The SaaS Sales Method. That is available per today on Amazon. Uh, but if you can wait, uh, well, then wait, because in June, the new book is coming out. It's called Revenue, Recurring Revenue Architecture. And it's all about how you properly design and architect these services. As you can tell, as the founder of this company, I do this all pure with passion, floating on passion and sharing this with your audience, for which I am uh, grateful that you give me the opportunity. Absolutely. This has been absolute. This has been a masterclass. So I, I've, I've taken like six pages, seven, seven pages of notes. I still love my pen and paper and I have it. And I know everybody that's listening should be doing the exact same thing. Um, one of the things I'll, I'll point to it, this idea of taking the, that CS, the CS lead we talked about earlier, and I know we, we're going to wrap up, but bringing them earlier into that conversation about when they are the main person, right? Driving that, because that seems so important that for SaaS companies that the customer experience is just absolutely folks. Maybe I can have you on next time and we could talk about the bow tie more and, uh, and that and driving, driving impact. Remember I said that earlier on we were spending uh, money on, on nice fleece shirts, right? Like, like yeah. Arcteryx, beautiful shirts and not spending money on books, right? Yep. If we keep thinking of customer success as, a, as an organization that is responsible to avoid churn, mm-hmm. that we're going to measure in the number of hearts they get, aka net promoter score, right? Then, we're not, then we don't have the right people that are part of this conversation. The switch to all this is when we are starting to see that the role of customer success is that of a revenue function. We are now seeing uh, companies like Catalyst, ourselves, and others you know, like more and more teaching organizations, your customer success organization is a revenue organization, money-centric, not love-centric with hearts. They're not there to harvest five likes or five stars or whatever it is. They're, that's not what they do. Your companies are telling you how much they like your product based on their expenditure profile. That's what the real data is. And all that other stuff, is also important. I don't want to take away from that promoter score. I think we still should measure that, but that is a secondary metric. And if yep. we keep hanging on to that in today's world, we are missing the opportunity. And as a result, these customer success organizations are not going to be taken seriously. And they're always going to be remained in the last slides of the deck where I believe we should actually start with them and say like, hey, what did we learn from our customers? Which ones are growing? And then propagate that all the way back up with the lead flow, and particularly called outbound-based lead flow being the last topic to talk about. And for those of you who are listeners, we all know, and well, I, I should say it for myself, I should speak for myself and then see how much is. At Winning by Design, the top three ways of leads generated, number one, people talk about us because we did a good job in the previous job, right? Like, we did a good job mm-hmm. and they talk about us. Number two, we provide workshops. We educate on this stuff, right? And number three are YouTube videos and books. In other words, knowledge, insights. This is the way how, how enterprise sales businesses grow. And SaaS is a form of, is, is a derivative of enterprise sales. This is what yep. you grow. So why am I spending all the time on how many, how much do I spend on SEO, search terms, websites, landing pages, and so on? Like, of course, when, when I give a word of mouth referral, that person is going to go to our website and they may sign in as an, in, you know, as an inbound, right? But they, when, you, when you ask and trace them back, 
they always heard from you somewhere, which happens at the back end. Therefore, it's way better to focus on that back end. Well, with that said, I hope that we have yes. lots your listeners lots to talk about. Absolutely. No, this has been fantastic. And I think, yeah, I can't wait for the next time. So with that said, what, how do people find Winning by Design and you specifically just want to make sure that they're going to want to reach out? Sure. Winning by Design is a consulting firm that specializes 100% in recurring revenue for B2B companies and 100% focused on the go-to-market function. So we don't do product management and engineering. We focus on marketing, sales, and customer success in short. And what we help companies to do is assess and design where they're at through our uh, consulting business. We then train, provide playbooks, instrument through tools such as your, your own tools. We instrument that to make sure that they achieve recurring revenue. And we typically, we are very successful for companies that grow from 10 million to about 200 to $50 million in recurring revenue, ramping them up to go IPO, right? And then we have, you know, like renowned companies that that we have, that that you hear us talk about are companies like Dropbox and DocuSign, companies like that. We've helped them, you know, in the later stages. We call those grown, grown up stages. You can find myself on LinkedIn, simple enough, Jocko. And, you know, like in most cases, due to the unique, unique name, Jocko, you only have to type in Jocko and sales and you'll get, you'll get plenty of this. Um, if you seek out and want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I, I always love to, to do that. But please mention this session. Please say in follow-up to this particular session because I get so many requests and due to the onslaught of AI and people not having a real profile, I need to know if you are real. I love to connect with you if you're real. That's not the problem. But my network is still value, valuable to me. So I want to make sure that it's only true people and not the fake ones. Fantastic. Uh, may, I ask, may I ask you one thing, Paul? Yeah, or, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. At the outcome of that, what are the, what are a few, you know, say maybe one, two or three at most takeaways? What did you pick up today that you that that stood out to you? Um Number one, the history of your history of uh, how SaaS has changed and the the impact of where what that means to where we are right now, which is I would say this this age of durable growth and how we we focus durable on durable growth, which CS CS driven and I took sales, you know, when we're talking sales impact and acquisition, we need to drive talent and training really at the heart of that. So taking unskilled to skilled, right? So this that to me ties really highly to the durable growth theme where I think SaaS has to go and SaaS sales truly has to go to be to be relevant. The second, let me look in my notes, the second is continual impact. The words, those two words, continual impact and what we have to strive for as an organization. And that starts at the salesperson driving selling with impact, right? So SaaS companies make, I see all the time, making the mistake of selling features and benefits. And, you know, and what you end up getting caught on when you're in that features and benefits conversation is you get caught at the end of the funnel in a battle for clicks and with a battle for the, with the unicorns out there that have somehow gone from zero to, you know, a hundred million quickly, but when you're still on impacts, you can have a conversation at the strategic level. So that's what I took from that. And I think the uh, the third is really just process, process, process is how we process. And I tie that to methodology. You tie that to methodology really well. And what you're talking about is 
is having that that methodology, that language that encompasses, that's all encompassing and connects with the processes that you run within your business. But it, that has to start at, for growth, that has to start earlier, right? It has to start and it has to start with founders being able to say, I'm not a, okay, I'm a superstar and I have, you know, 10 superstars on the team, but these superstars need to have at least a base. We have to work with them at least on a base process for expansion. Else, once we get to that 10, we're we're reinventing everything. So those three things, I really, I mean, they really stuck with me. And I think uh, I think they're going to stick with, hopefully I, I said them the right way because I think they're going to stick with the users too. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, yeah, if the users reach out to me, I love to hear from them um, uh, what their t- takeaways is, the takeaways are. We're in a weird spot in the world right now. And there's few things that we can do about, you know, like what's going on on a geopolitical phase, uh, stage. What we can do with sales and with many of the people listening to here is like, look, much of this happens through human communications. Marketing, sales, and customer success is all about human communications. In the, in the end, we still live, it doesn't matter how much chat GPT, whether we're on chat GPT 4, 5, 6, or whatever uh, AGI, advanced generative uh, bots are going into the future. We're going to come back to the sole truth of it, all, of it all again and again. This is about humans communicating with humans. This is what we seek. This is what we ache for. This is also the area of the the biggest area of conflict in the world. So if we just communicate kindly, help each other, and instead of trying to go for the dollar, right, the good almighty green dollar, instead of help people achieve that impact, that growth, and grow together rather than grow ourselves, instead of calling it closing, we say it's mutual commit. We're going together in this, right? You, you know, I give you my mm-hmm. software, you give me your money, and together we're going to try to grow. If we think of it all, then I know it's not a big piece of the world that we can control, but we control a little piece. And if that little piece comes across with kindness and with, a, with, with the goal to, to achieve both, become better out of this, hey, there's millions of salespeople in the world. That means that SaaS can change the world. We already see it has, but I think it can go further. That's what excites me every day. That's why I keep writing books. That's why I keep talking about it, sharing that with, with other you know, experts in the field like yourselves and enthusiasts that are listening to us. It, the job ain't done. The, the SaaS, we ended the decade of great growth. That's fantastic. That fueled it onto the next decade, a decade where we will help our customers to achieve that what we promised in the first decade. In I love it. Let's make it happen together, Jacko. I'm on board. Thank you. I'm on board. Thank you so much. And with that, everybody, we are going to sign off for today. Thank you so much. Uh, Listen to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Art and Science of Complex Sales. This podcast is sponsored by Membrane and our partners from around the globe. Here at Membrane, we believe that B2B sales is at a crossroads. Due to decades of quantity-based prospecting, information overload, and really a shift towards efficiency over service and pitching over leadership in sales, customers are saying enough is enough. They're tuning out average performers and choosing to take most of the buying journey on their own. This results in up and down sales results, forecasts that are all over the place, and salespeople that are half committed due to the fact that they're having poor results and they have an inability to truly connect with customers. We believe the road successful companies are taking to combat this is threefold. Number one, training to create leaders and executives across all areas of the team with strong habits and sales methodologies that bring value. Number two, technology. Technology that focuses and helps a salesperson succeed and reinforces great habits, 
rather than wasting their time on filling out fields for reporting or wasting their time on spamming customers that have no interest in ever buying. Third, talent. And I'm talking about talent that's empowered and emboldened to make a difference for the customers and their companies. So where are you on that journey? Membrane and our network of partners across the globe are here to help and to elevate the sales profession. We streamline critical technology by combining CRM, training and enablement, and more into one seamless platform. We drive best-in-class methodologies through our partners. They provide the top thought leadership methodologies and resources from across the globe. And our collective efforts are dedicated to recruiting, training, coaching, and empowering, and measuring the habits of the top teams in the world to ensure success. Join us at Membrane.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening.